0: Επίκρανεν αυτό για σάβενον της σαρπός αυτού και τούτο προλαβών της Αγίας Ο άνθρωπος της επικράτη συναντήσας επικράτη που γενικά επικράτη επικράτη You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples To help us better understand the biblical text, the Nativity scene is the emblem of the Christmas season. Most of us have seen them, they are a well known part of Western culture. We see the image on television, greeting cards, Coffee mugs, candles, and Christmas ornaments. The Nativity scene is as ubiquitous a Christian symbol as the cross, especially at Christmas time. But what exactly is a Nativity scene? A Nativity scene is a three dimensional depiction of the birth of Jesus. Originally, this depiction, which in English we call Nativity Scene, was called Crib. It's interesting that the origin of the word crib is from the Old English, and it referred to the feeding bin of a cattle stable. So we hear the influence of the biblical story on the English language. Fascinating. It is in the Gospel book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 7, that we hear that Jesus is laid in a manger. A little bit of a digression about this word before we continue. The word in Greek for manger is fatni, which is from the word pateome, which means to eat. So Jesus is laid in the place where animals eat. In Luke chapter 13, verse 15, this word fatni is again used when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and he is calling out the rulers for their hypocrisy. We hear him argue, saying to them, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his ass from the manger, read Fatni, and lead it away to water it? When you're trying to understand a text, find its other uses in the given text. It helps. I'm going into some detail here about the origin of the traditional word which was used for nativity scene for a reason. I want you to understand that the meaning of something is in the language, in the words. The imagery evoked by the words conveys a meaning, but images alone are not reliable since it is the observer who is left to interpret that image. Let's talk about this matter. Using the example of the nativity scene, when we look upon a nativity scene, we are numbed out by the image. We gaze at the manger. How cute, the baby Jesus looks lying there, but we don't make the connection to food. How would we from the image alone? Perhaps those who live and work on farms may readily make the connection from this image. They may know from seeing a manger what its purpose is, a place which contains food for animals. But for most of us who do not know farms, farming, or farm life, we would not understand what a manger is. Now, in the case of this word manger, the word in English is an appropriate translation And accurately expresses this connection to food. Manger is from the French manger, which means to eat. So the meaning is plainly there. But we do not hear the connection. Ask an English speaker, What is a manger? and they will not know what to answer. At best, they may have some vague notion that it is the place where we find the baby Jesus in the nativity scene. Let us remember that it is from the biblical text that we know about the baby Jesus and the manger. Unless we hear the gospel book of Luke chapter 2, we will miss the author's intention. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is metaphorically food, sustenance, provision from God. This is what's being expressed here. Let us return to the nativity scene and what it is. Traditionally, at minimum, the nativity scene tableau is comprised of Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus, depicted outdoors and sometimes under a stable-type structure and among the animals of the field—cows, donkeys, and sheep— Shepherds and angels are also depicted in the scene. There are variations on this basic theme. Some nativity scenes include the Magi, kneeling before the baby Jesus and presenting their gifts, or approaching from afar, seated on camels, with the star depicted hovering over the scene. St. Francis of Assisi is credited with creating the first nativity scene in 1223 A.D. According to St. Bonaventure, who in 1260 wrote about the life of St. Francis, St. Francis staged a live nativity scene in a cave in the hills of Greccio, Italy, with people and animals reenacting the story. The nativity scene, this reenactment of the birth of Jesus, is an example of the way we can get carried away by images. Don't misunderstand me. I am not criticizing nativity scenes. They are nice and I enjoy them. I have one on my Christmas tree. I'm using the nativity scene as an example of how we tend to favor the visual. It is our collective bias. We assume by looking at something That we understand what it is expressing. My contention is that we must question our assumptions. You know that idiom, don't judge a book by its cover. This is what I mean. The look of the cover of a book tells you nothing about its content. So let us turn our attention to what is written, because what is written The biblical text is our reference, not the images that we craft from what is written. Remember the distinction between a primary and a secondary source. The images we create about the biblical story are our interpretation of the biblical text, but they are not the biblical text. What we have in the biblical text are two different stories about the birth of Jesus. We hear about the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is referenced in all the New Testament books, but it is only in two of the Gospel books, Luke and Matthew, that we hear about His birth, the so-called Nativity. We tend to assume that the Gospel books begin with the birth of Jesus, as though the Gospels were crafted like modern biographies, a chronology of a person's life. But this is not what we find in the Gospel books. Neither Luke nor Matthew begin with the birth of Jesus the way we tend to think of it. In both Gospels, there is a preamble of text whose words, whose vocabulary and content are taken from the Old Testament. So the stories of Jesus in Luke and Matthew are rooted in the Old Testament texts. This does not mean that Jesus is specifically mentioned in the Old Testament. Luke and Matthew's narratives are different in both content and tone. I had hoped today to take a close look at both Luke and Matthew's narratives in detail, but having begun the work, I realized that this is too ambitious and impractical for one episode. So instead, I will quickly offer some general remarks about Matthew's narrative and then we will explore Luke's narrative in detail. Finally, I will swing back around to the topic of the nativity scene, the image of the scene that is our Christmas emblem. There is a depiction, a painting from the 15th century AD, that is unique among nativity scene depictions and worth discussing. We will conclude today's episode with the work of Francesco di Giorgio Martini, called Adoration by the Shepherds. Coming back to the book of Matthew and its narrative about the birth of Jesus. As I have said, neither Luke nor Matthew begin their stories with the birth of Jesus. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We hear about the 14 generations from Abraham to David. Matthew's first words, Biblos geneseos, are the same words we hear at the start of the book of Genesis chapter 5. The writer means to connect his book, Matthew, with Genesis in the minds of the hearers. And in fact, in Matthew, there is no birth scene a la Luke, no shepherds, no manger. Matthew tells us, explains the occurrence of the birth in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, but we have no nativity scene depicted here. We hear that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and told him that his betrothed Mary would conceive a son of the Holy Spirit, meaning directly from God. And that is the extent of the information we are given about the birth. Then in chapter 2, the focus shifts to other characters in the story. In Matthew, we have characters in the birth narrative that we do not have in Luke. We hear about Herod the king, the magi from the east, the chief priests and scribes of the people, the prophets, and Archelaus, whose father is Herod. There are also elements in this story that we do not hear in Luke's telling, We hear about the star in the east, the tense exchange between King Herod with all Jerusalem, and the Magi. You could call them soothsayers or oracles from a faraway place. We hear about the fleeing to Egypt, the slaying of the young infant boys, and the return to Galilee to a city called Nazareth. Let us now turn to Luke and his birth narrative. After the dedication to Theophilus, Luke begins his story with the story of John, who we refer to as the Baptist, and his conception and birth. We hear about the priest Zechariah of the division of Abiyah and his wife Elizabeth from the daughters of Aaron. Their story is patterned after the Abraham and Sarah story in the book of Genesis chapter 17. A couple both advanced in years, well past childbearing age, and the woman is said to be barren. Despite this circumstance, by God's decree, she bears a child. The child, then, is from God. Isaac is born to Sarah, as John is born to Elizabeth in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, Jesus' birth is announced before the time. The angel Gabriel. The name Gabriel is the transliteration in Greek of the Hebrew, which means mighty God. The angel Gabriel is sent from God to Nazareth, which is in Galilee, to Mary, to tell her that she will bear a son. It is not until Luke chapter 2 that we hear specifically about the birth of Jesus. Let's hear the story. Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 20. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinus was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace Let's explore some words and their meanings in order to understand Luke's narrative in chapter 2. When we hear chapter 2, right away, we have mention of the Roman emperor, the first emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, and very soon after, we hear the name Quirinus, said to be governor of Syria. This sets us up in our mind to understand that the setting, the location, the domain in which the story unfolds is the Roman Empire. It is the rule and authority of Rome that is emphasized. The word here in Greek for governor is only found twice in all the New Testament, only in Luke, here in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, when we hear about the reign of Tiberius Caesar and the governor Pontius Pilate. The name Quirinus is written in the Greek, Quirinios, whose origin is Latin. It is derived from a Sabine word, Quiris, which means spear. The Sabines were an ancient Italic tribe who preceded the Romans. Quirinus was also a major Roman deity, and he is connected with Romulus, Rome's mythic founder. His temple on the Quirinal Hill, one of the seven hills of Rome, was one of the oldest in Rome, and his festival, Quirinalia, fell on the same date that Romulus was said to have ascended to the gods. Even if we did not know these roots in Roman mythology, the etymology of this name Quirinus has within it the symbol of Roman military power, the spear. All this to the ear makes it clear that Rome rules. As the story unfolds, we hear names of characters that we have already heard in the Old Testament books, Joseph, David, and Miriam. It is Miriam with an M sound that we have in Luke, not Marias with an S sound. I will defer a study of the name Mariam for a future episode when we will discuss names in the Bible in more detail. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. In Matthew, we hear Galilee referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles, but we don't have that specific language in Luke. In Luke, we are meant to hear that Galilee is outside Judea. Away from Jerusalem, the locus of the temple and its leaders. Galilee is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew. It is from the Hebrew word galil, which we hear in the Old Testament books of Joshua, Kings, and Chronicles. It can be an adjective or a noun, meaning something rolling or turning, circuitous, a cylinder or a rod. Now, it is very interesting to note. Recall our discussion of the biblical scroll some episodes ago. The Hebrew word for scroll, which we find heavily in the prophetic books Jeremiah and Ezekiel, is Megillah, and the root of Megillah is galal, which means to roll. And this word galal is very closely related to galil. They are almost the same word, except that Galil is spelled with the Hebrew letter Yud. So to the ear, we have this word Galilee linked to the scroll. Now jumping a bit ahead, assuming we had heard the whole of Luke's story, we would be hearing Ezekiel's message that the Lord's scroll, His instruction, His Torah, comes from outside Jerusalem, outside of the domain of the temple and its authorities. So, to recap, the word Galilee has within it the root Galil, which is closely related to the Hebrew root Galal, which is the basis for the Hebrew word for scroll, Megillah. This is an excellent example of the way that these texts are literarily linked now we come to Nazareth, the city of Nazareth. Nazareth is not a Greek word. Its derivation is uncertain, and there is disagreement about its possible roots. There is no reference in the Old Testament to Nazareth as the name of a town. We do find the Hebrew word nazar, and Strong's Concordance offers nazar as a possible Hebrew root for this name Nazareth. Natsar means to preserve or keep, and also means to guard or protect. We find it heavily in the book of Psalms. The Lord is the preserver and keeper of His people, and the psalmist is asking the Lord to preserve and keep Him. We also find it in the book of Deuteronomy, as in, to keep the Lord's commandments, So we might say that Nazareth is the guarded one, or the one who guards or keeps. Perhaps the writer is intending to connect Jesus with this place, as in, Nazareth as the keeper of Jesus, the Lord's instruction. We also hear about the city of David, Bethlehem. Both David and Bethlehem are repeated twice in this chapter. In the Bible, Repetition communicates emphasis. It has the same function as when we bold or italicize the words when we type. David is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Dawid, which is from the root Dod, which means beloved. We know about David from the Old Testament texts. We hear about David the shepherd, who became king in 1 and 2 Samuel, and of course in Psalms the many songs of David. In 1 Samuel, David keeps his father's sheep in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is also the place where David is anointed king of Israel. As we continue in Luke chapter 2, we hear that Joseph is of the house, a descendant of the house of David, and so he goes to Bethlehem, the city of his ancestors to be counted, to be registered, in submission to the decree of the Roman emperor. And while there, Mary gives birth to her son. Bethlehem is another Greek transliteration from the Hebrew. Bethlehem is a compound word which means house of bread. We have bite, house, and lehem, bread. So we have another element in the story that communicates that in this house of bread, Jesus is born. Jesus, then, can be said to be metaphorically the bread, the sustenance provided by God. Bethlehem is the place of God's provision, and it happens to be the setting of shepherds. We can hear Ezekiel's influence in this story. Jesus is described as the firstborn, prototohos. This word is found only once in Luke and is sourced from the letters of Paul. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul uses this word, prototohos. He describes Jesus as the firstborn among many brethren. We also find this word, prototohos, used in the setting of farm life in the book of Genesis. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, we find this word prototohos used in chapter 4, verse 4, where it is written that Abel, brought of the firstborn, read prototokos, of his flock as an offering to the Lord. In Luke, Matthew, and Mark, there is a play on the word protos, which means first, We hear about the first being last and the last being first. As we continue Luke's narrative, we hear that Mary wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. We've already spoken about manger and its meaning here. We will hear in a few verses the full impact of this pastoral scene when we hear the angel of the Lord announcing the birth to the shepherds He describes the baby just born as Savior, and Christ, and Lord. Understand that these three terms are imperial titles. At that time, it was the Roman emperor and him alone who was the Savior, the anointed of the gods, and Lord of his people. So this is quite a subversive statement. Not only that but it is rich with irony. It is not only a baby who is given these titles, but a baby that lays practically on the ground, in a trough among the livestock. A royal baby at that time would certainly occupy a more exalted place of rest than that depicted here in Luke. It's almost comic. Imagine you are a first-century Roman citizen hearing this text it might sound like their version of the onion, a satire, or a joke. As we continue in the story, we hear that there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this requires more word study so that we can hear the text. The word translated as room is topos, and topos means any space which is marked off from the surrounding space, a spot. Its use here is connected to the preceding verse. Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no spot for him, no place. Topos here functions a bit like the statement we will hear later in Luke, in chapter 9, verse 58. In this verse, we hear Jesus say, that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We can hear the connection in the story. Jesus starts in chapter two with no place, and in chapter nine, he still has no place. Next, we have the word in. The word in is katalimati. This is a very interesting word whose origin is connected to the agricultural setting, a major biblical motif. This word is from the verb katallio, which means to throw down or break up. The origin of the word makes a meaningful connection to the setting of the domain of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Katallio figuratively has the meaning of pausing for rest on a journey. The breaking up of a journey, and this is what we have in the noun katalimati, translated as in. This word is rooted in the circumstance of traveling with animals. From Strong's Concordance, number G2647, we learn that at the occasion of stopping for the night, the straps and packs which are carried on the animals are loosened, unbound, and taken off. The procedures performed when you are preparing to rest on a journey are the katalimati. What an image! How wonderfully this adds to the scene we hear in Luke. This makes the case for the importance of looking up the words in the language in which they are written. In or guest house has no obvious connection to the setting of a journey across the open land with fields and animals. To hear what the writer intended us to hear, we must look up the words. The story continues, and we hear about the shepherds. The shepherds are part of the setting in Bethlehem. They are said to be in the same country. The word in Greek is hora, which has the meaning of an empty expanse. A better word might be region or area but neither quite convey the sense of emptiness, meaning an expanse which is unpopulated. And we have an interesting exchange between the angel of the Lord and the shepherds. Notice the repetition of the word Lord, Kyrios. We have already heard this word several times in chapter 1. And now, here in chapter 2, we have the angel of the Lord who stood before the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. In this, we hear another expression of subversion. In the domain of the Roman Empire, it is solely the emperor who can claim the title Kyrios. The student of the Bible, even a beginner, would know that the word Kyrios is used hundreds of times in the New Testament but we find its highest incidences in Luke and Acts, 107 and 113, respectively. Returning again to the scene, the angel announces the birth to the shepherds and refers to the baby Jesus as brephos. This is an interesting and curious choice of words. The angel tells the shepherds that they will find a babe. Read brephos wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Brephos here, translated as babe, is a noun which is neuter in gender. Its origin is uncertain. It means baby, but not just baby, a baby who is unborn, a fetus. This word brephos is used in Luke chapter 1 where it is written that Elizabeth's babe leapt in her womb on having heard Mary's salutation. Brephos is repeated four times in Luke and used only three other times in the New Testament. Why not the word for child, technon, that we heard in Luke chapter 1 about Elizabeth and Zechariah? They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, or pedion little child, which we will soon hear used later in Luke. Curious, what might the writer be intending by using this brephos here in this particular text? As we continue, we are approaching the closing scene of the chapter. The angels have spoken and are now gone away into heaven. It is the description of the shepherds that I want to highlight since it fits so well with my conviction that I expressed at the beginning of the episode, which is that an image is not enough. It is the explanation of that image that conveys the meaning. And the shepherds in Luke seem to have understood this. Let's hear it. Luke chapter 2, verses 15 to 18. concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Yes, I exaggerated the reading here, but for a reason. So what's worth noting about these verses? Notice the crafting of the language. It doesn't say, that the shepherds went and saw the babe and then went and told everyone what they saw. The emphasis is not on what was seen, but on what was heard, the explanation that was given by the angels. We hear that the shepherds made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child, and that all those who heard it, marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. That's the point. The writer is careful to make you understand the story as a teaching. It is not the birth per se, but the angel's explanation of the scene that gives you the meaning. And in the final verses of the chapter, we have something similar going on, but you can't hear it in English. Let us hear verse 19. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. This sounds to the modern hearer as though the writer is saying that Mary was reflecting or meditating on her special relationship with her baby or with God. But that is incorrect. Let us hear the words. The word translated here as kept, or in other translations, treasured, is the Greek verb sinetiri, from the word sintireo, which means to preserve a thing, to prevent it from being lost or perishing. But figuratively, it has the meaning of to remember, and it connotes obedience, to remember something in order to obey it. The word here, things, is a terrible translation for the Greek word rimata, which means that which is spoken, the words or the utterances, the content that is being expressed. Pondered is the translation of the Greek word symbalusa from the verb simbalo, which means to put together, to combine. There is nothing in this word that suggests reflecting or pondering. What is being expressed is that she is gathering the message the angel told her. Finally, the term in her heart requires some explanation. In the Bible, the heart refers to the mind, the place of our will and decision-making. This was also the way it was understood by the ancients, Homer and Aristotle, from their work and the way they used the word for heart, kardia. For them, the heart was the seat of intelligence. When the biblical writers use this word, this is what they mean. For them, the heart is not the locus of emotions or feelings. The better word for that in the Bible splankna, which means bowels, or intestines, your guts. So using these definitions, a better translation of verse 19 might be, But Mary kept these sayings and gathered them in her mind. Now finally, in verse 20, we have this same word rimatos, the words the utterances, or sayings that is translated as things. So a more accurate translation might be, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the sayings that they had heard and seen as it was told them. I love the way the sentence ends this way, that we are left with what is told, and by extension, What is to be heard? It is in the hearing, my friends. This is what the biblical writers are up to. They want you to hear their story, not to imagine it. Let us return to where we started. We spoke about the nativity scene and the place it has as the Christmas emblem. I cautioned about assumptions assuming that simply by looking at a nativity scene that you understand its meaning you will walk away from looking upon a nativity scene with your thoughts about it but you won't hear what the biblical writer wrote and what he intended to say about this nativity there is a painting of a nativity scene that has the distinction of communicating Luke's story his subversive teaching in a powerful way. I have not seen another quite like it. It is called Adoration by the Shepherds, painted by Francesco di Giorgio Martini. It is dated from 1490 to 1495 AD. This piece is painted on wood and is part of a larger altarpiece which is housed in the Church of San Domenico in Siena, Italy. Di Giorgio Martini was a Sienese painter, sculptor, architect, and engineer who was a contemporary of Leonardo da Vinci. Like da Vinci, he was an early Renaissance man. At one point in his life, he served as a military engineer and architect and designed and built fortifications for his patrons. He was a great admirer of the classical world and you can appreciate his training in architecture when you look on his painting, Adoration by the Shepherds. The piece is a large rectangular painting, which measures about 8 feet by 7 feet. It is the centerpiece of an altar display. The painting has a surreal and ominous quality. Distantly in the background, you see hills and a gray sky, And then milky pools of water, on which you see two tiny ships. But then, in the foreground, the piece is dominated by a structure we don't usually see in nativity scenes. A Roman triumphal arch. An imposing stone structure. It is the focal point of the piece. It practically consumes it. The building is low color with subtle lines that look like streaks of marble. This Roman triumphal arch, the symbol of Roman military power and victory, is damaged, rent into two parts, with rubble strewn over the scene. Recall that Roman triumphal arches were used to commemorate military victories and celebrate victorious generals. The Roman victor and their entourage would parade through the archway and be celebrated for their victory. In the painting, the area under the arch, where the Roman army would march, is occupied instead by two animals of the field, an ox and a sheep, and they are depicted rooting around the stone rubble. It's quite something. The scene of the nativity that we are familiar with is depicted in front of the broken arch. From left to right, we see two angels, and then Joseph, seated with his right foot, resting on a piece of broken marble. And at his feet lies the baby Jesus, and he is reclining, not in a manger, but on a broken piece of the ruins of the arch. Then we see Mary, kneeling and facing the baby, And behind her, two shepherds are standing on pieces of rubble and peering over the scene. The coloring is interesting and a bit unsettling. The angel, Mary, and one of the shepherds are robed in different shades of red. Curious that the shepherd would be robed in such a distinguished, almost royal color. The shepherds are darkly colored, giving the viewer the feeling that they might be interlopers. The eyes of the figures in the scene appear downcast and in the direction of the baby Jesus, but they are not exactly looking at him. It's a very interesting piece. Google it and take a look for yourself. I wanted to share this piece with you because it communicates Luke's subversive nativity narrative. In Luke, Roman power and authority are usurped by this baby who rests in a manger. In Di Giorgio Martini's painting, we see the triumph of Rome literally shattered in two. It still stands, but it is in ruins. It's rubble strewn across the scene. And the baby Jesus, who is said to be Savior and Christ and Lord, reclines on the wreckage. The Debris of the Powerful In this we hear the echoes of the prophetic teaching, that the mighty will be laid low, and that the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Wishing you all a Merry Christmas. Stay tuned for new episodes in the new year which will post once a month. Until twenty twenty two. This is Vexed. Vexed is a production of the Ephesus School Network.